Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We are highlighting adaptations from Season 9 over at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Robin and Marion was specifically based on the ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods. We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel, Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations, Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series, and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical. Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir. And we looked at a trio of John Le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Plus, all three movies in our Agnieszka Holland series were based on books, Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore. La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series. All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. 
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. North by Northwest is over. It's time for a little expedient exaggeration. Have you planned your vacation yet? You've a choice between sand and sunburn or mountain climbing and the Charlie horse. I find it all very enervating, but we should all have some kind of holiday. So, my suggestion is a quiet little tour, say about 2,000 miles. I have just made a motion picture, North by Northwest, to show you some of these delights. And the ideal place to start our holiday fun trip is New York where Cary Grant can go places and do things. You don't find a tasteful little murder on every guided tour, now do you? But this means we must leave Manhattan. Hello there. Tell me, why are you so good to me? Shall I climb up and tell you why? How do I know you aren't a murderer? You don't. A train may be an old-fashioned way to travel, but an upper berth can be a lovely place to go when it's your time to go. North by Northwest, Andy, what an exciting movie. Isn't it? Let me tell you, all the problems I had with Bozo the Grant last week, (laughs) I did not have here. I, I don't know. Do you think yeah. that this film could have been made even better if <laughs> Hitch had Carrie doing some double takes directly into the lens a few times? You- like when he <laughs> finds some information, like maybe when Leo Carroll gives him like the whole a MacGuffin conversation and during the airplane uh, engine noise, he just looks at the camera like, And, you know, anytime he's restrained... Maybe they jam a cloth at his mouth and just have him mug, mug to the camera. You're Definitely right. when he's driving drunk. Yes. Yes. <laughs> his know? wheels hanging off the side. <laughs> he needed to look into the lens. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, I see where you're going there. I do contend still that the movie is better as is, but maybe oh, there's fine. a, maybe there's an extended sure. <laughs> director's cut, a bozo director's cut of North by Northwest. <laughs> Bring in some Capra. Come mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. I had a, a terrific time with this movie. It, it is, I watch it and it reminds me, hey, I should watch this more. <laughs> right. Everything about this movie just works for me. Just 100% from start to finish. And it's, I, I, it's my favorite Hitchcock film. It just, every, it just works. And I, I find it to be such a clever script, such a, a fun, example of what Hitchcock loved to do with the um, wrong man on the run sort of storyline. He has uh, just clearly has mastered the telling of this type of story and does such a great job of it with Cary Grant in the role as this uh, ad agent who is (laughs) mistaken very early on to be a non-existent uh, spy for, for an unnamed agency and uh, is is now on the run for the rest of the film. I mean, it just works. It it just everything about it is just uh, just keeps it moving, and it's just very fun. And I I, I think that Hitchcock really 
was showing very strong filmmaking prowess when he made it too. Just the way that he shot the film, the way that he constructed it. I, I think that it's just, it's, I mean, I just, I can't say enough good things about the movie. Yeah, no, you're a real fan. I get it. <laughs> uh, let's unpack the wrong man on the run tropes, can we? What makes a wrong man on the run movie uh, and then what makes a wrong man on the run movie work? You first have to um, have the guy get mistaken for something. So obviously that has to be part of the whole trope, right? And mm-hmm. whether it's, uh, you know, I mean, gosh, I'm trying to think. Was the 39 Steps, was that the first time it happened with Hitchcock? I just, I can't recall if there was something that he did before that. I feel like it was. Generally, it's somebody who is uh, wrongly accused of a crime, and then they have to go on the run. I mean, we see a perfect example in a non-Hitchcock film, The Fugitive, where Richard Kimball is mistaken for having killed his wife. And when he's on the prison bus, it crashes and he escapes, and now he's being pursued. But mm-hmm. all he's doing is trying to clear his name. I think that's generally the 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 kind of the trope, right? It's a person who is wrongfully accused of something and is now running from the law in pursuit of the actual answers to prove their innocence. That's right. That, that I think, is the trick. It's not just evading the law. It's evading the law with intent to investigate. Yes. Okay. Uh, and in this film, it is... It starts, and I think this is one of the things that makes it so so funny, right, in that that funny, not funny kind of context, that the the trope kicks off early in the bar scene in a truly innocuous way. And, yeah. and you kind of have to, you, I mean, it's a scene where I think Hitch is counting us on us to be watching closely and listening closely because it's easy to miss. The, the, I was watching with my daughter. That? I was watching it with my daughter, and I actually had to back up for a few things for her because because I paused it after the bad guys take him, and I'm like, "Did you catch why they're picking him?" And she's like, "Is it just because he's rich?" <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought Aww. was great. I'm like, "Oh no, sweetie, let's go back." And so that's then also, I had to. That's also a good reason, honey. <laughs> that's, that's but <laughs> right. <laughs> but I had to go back and explain. Okay, so. This was a time before cell phones there, you know, he didn't have a phone he was walking around with. Somebody tries to call him at the bar and they, they get uh, a person who then sends a page out into the restaurant. And there's this page who walks around calling the name. When, and let's say it's so old that it's a page who's a human, not a pager. Yeah, right. Exactly. And he's just walking around. So I had to explain the whole thing to her so that she could understand it. And I do find it interesting that, you know, stuff like that obviously changes with time and stuff. But it is something you really do have to be paying attention to, because if you're not, you're going to miss that there's this page behind him calling for the name of this other person. And the fact that it's timed so well where where Roger Thornhill just happens to raise his hand and call for the page to come over so that he can call his mother, which is hilarity in and of itself the 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 concern he has with his mother throughout this film but his mother fact- who's totally not on his side at all you Ever. know what let mom's cheese hang in the wind because she, she's not helpful right exactly you're not really trying to kill my son are you <laughs> <laughs> but the, just the fact that uh, all of that is is done so efficiently in the script and and the in the performances that you really do have to pay attention to the fact that this page is calling for this particular person 
he happens to call the page while the page is is doing this and with without knowing that the page is doing that and that's what these two villains kind of that that's the piece that they needed to say oh he's our guy they are great thugs uh gentlemen in the beginning not afraid to pull out a gun in a pub in a hotel uh valerian the one that i i recognize as uh, adam williams uh, has been in uh, a bunch of stuff uh 113 credits and i he's just he's the face for me he is the face and it's funny to see him in a movie next to martin landau who was and and i think could have been lost as an incredibly iconic face and became a full-fledged star and i uh, you know williams never quite transcended that but he has a lot, a lot of wonderful mugs <laughs> In this movie, the the number of times that you just open a door and he's looking there, staring back into the room like, what is he doing when the door is closed? He's just with his nose up against the door always. <laughs> is that what he does with his time? He's ready. He's he so is ready. ready. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, the, so, the, those those two villains do a great job of just kind of providing that level of foil for him. They do, and that that gets to the next sort of trope. Like, uh, what what is the trope? Is is there a trope in the Wrong Man on the Run about villainry? For example, you brought up uh, what's his name? Uh, the it was the one armed man. Um, yeah, Richard Kimball. In so Richard the Kimball right. in the Fugitive, and so you know, part of that is you have law enforcement after them and you have this character this law enforcement character who is kind of the the law enforcement with a big heart and he eventually doesn't oh i don't really care i'm just doing my job but it turns out he kind of does care as he learns more of the story and they sort of come to center um and and so there is a turn in the the law enforcement trying to catch him where does that turn does that turn happen in this movie for example uh, and and whose is it we do have the cia which in a a plain explanation of what they're what they were doing explained that they have um you know created this fake character as a as a you know MacGuffin for the ultimate guy that they were trying to catch uh and they're not going to help our, our right. man they're not going to help him he's he is uh he's out on his own he became the real embodiment of this fake person and yet the professor does come around and sort of turn not necessarily for the right intentions, but he sort of changes his heart. I feel like he only does because of the situation that is created at the uh, at the United Nations. Yeah, you know, I, because I, I he don't, needs him. Right at that point, you know, well, for several reasons. One, uh, he has kind of ingratiated himself with Eve, and uh, wonderfully played by Eva Marie Saint, and uh, because of that, has potentially threatened her relationship with Van Damme, played by James Mason, and she's really the agent. And so that's like this huge thing. So now they need uh, Thornhill to kind of be on their side and help them out. But also, it's this whole thing of like creating this huge situation at the United Nations where now he's framed and wanted across the around the world, really, because or because he's this guy who assassinated a guy at the United Nations and uh, or at least is presumed to have stabbed uh, Lester Townsend in the back and uh, is photographed having uh, just finished. Is that a trope of the wrong man on the run? Some sort of of photographic documentation of the the crime in action. I feel like it's boy, I 
I want to say yes, but I say that not being able to give you any other examples. <laughs> because you know that's going to be a list pick for Saturday matinee in a couple of weeks if we, so, don't, if we don't nail that down. Right, I know. No, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I'm not going to commit. <laughs> okay. But... Because, uh, like, you know, I don't... Okay, evidence that leads them to think that he is the person. I guess that... Because yeah. in, in the case of The Fugitive, it's her 911 call. Kimball's wife's 911 call. Right. Where she says, you know, Richard, he's trying to kill me. But she's trying to talk to her husband. But the 911 people and everyone in the court just presume that that she's saying Richard is trying to kill me, her husband. Right. And, and, and by all yeah. by all examination, like they build a really good case that this is unimpeachable evidence if you if you don't have any context. And that's yeah. exactly what we have here. Exactly. A, a man in a photo holding a knife over a body whose With back a, he just pulled the knife, knife out of. <laughs> knife shaped hole in it. <laughs> <laughs> right. We do also have the love interest, right? We have this fantastic... Um, uh, Eva Marie Saint. Eve uh, Kendall. Eve Marie Saint. Yeah. Eve Kendall. Uh, yeah. Played by Eva Marie Saint. And she also gives us a bit of a twisty, twisty ride. You know, it's really interesting script because in some ways, I feel like uh, Ernest Lehman, who had written this uh, kind of with uh, with Hitchcock, was tapping into some of the vibe from the film's noir that had come before because mm-hmm. there is something about her, even though she ends up being on the side of of our hero— I feel like there is some nod to the femme fatale that we had seen before, especially when we, as the audience, learn long before Roger does that she is working with Van Damme, right? Where we see on the train when she kind of gives him that awkward hug, or it's it's a nice hug, but it's awkward because we see her eyes with that look like, you know, she know there's a lot more going on and then she leaves and passes the note to the other room and and then of course the phone call with uh, uh Martin Landau's character in the train station mm-hmm. there are a lot of those little moments where it does feel like she is really set up as this femme fatale character for uh, Roger Thornhill and it's it's really interesting to kind of see the little history pieces that that Lehman is pulling from in order to construct this uh, this uh, crime thriller. Uh, in terms of her character motivation, the twistiest parts for me are uh, around first, obviously, on the train where we have a developing love interest relationship. And she, uh, if if there was ever a randier person than uh, we had in Capra last week, uh, a randier couple, it's it's her. It's Eve Kendall. Uh, getting after some Roger, uh, uh, you know, Thornburg, Thornhill. Yeah. Thornhill. Yeah. uh, It's a, it is also a Hitchcock thing. I mean, think about the kiss that happens between Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman in Notorious, where he was trying to kind of break the censors that didn't permit a kiss to be longer than X number of seconds. And he said, okay, we're just going to do this, this whole yeah, scene, the, the whole this conversation between scene. the two of them, where they're talking the whole time, their lips are together and they're kissing. Yeah, it's it, it. I think it fits very much in with Hitchcock's fascination with his blondes. I think 
uh, Eva Marie Saint very much taps into exactly the sort of look that that he had found in Grace Kelly yeah. and would find in Tippi Hedren. And I, I just think it's very much a part of kind of that Alfred Hitchcock um, blonde that that he would always uh, put in his films, especially when he could do it in situations like this, where there's just such sexuality kind of oozing from the character. Well, and that plays out perfectly throughout the entire film. They have the ups and downs of their entire relationship, right? Uh, and eventually that leads us to to understand that she is is duplicitous, triplicitous. Is that a thing? That it, it feels like she's she ends up cheating on him, working for the bad guy. Nope, she does work. She's an undercover agent, and then the final joke. It's it is almost a James Bondian uh, level uh, sex joke where they're hanging off the side of the uh, uh, Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore, yeah. And he gives that final pull and pulls her up off the cliff and into bed. <laughs> Right. right, right into the right into, into the, 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 the upper character. berth in the train, <laughs> and then we have the uh, the brilliant shot of the train going into the tunnel. Oh, yeah! If that's that could, just th- like that is a Roger Moore play right there, totally, straight totally. out of the Roger Moore playbook. Which is funny because this is definitely. Uh, I mean, some people say this really was a film that lent a lot to the James Bond franchise. Truly. You know, just the whole idea of this man who keeps going from from big uh, action piece to action piece while in pursuit. In this case, he's being pursued, but he's also trying to pursue. It fits. You can see the James Bond, uh, kind of the, the pieces that were pulled from this to kind of build into that. And I can't remember which one specifically, but there was actually a um uh a scene that i think was referenced in in one of the james bond films i'll have to see if i can find it while we're chatting the prairie scene that was one that i wanted to talk to you about was um because i think pulling that scene apart a little bit um as you can see referenced in the live stream twice um is (laughs) is i think really interesting because that's a scene that actually slows down the uh, action scene to action scene because we uh, through specific intentional use of space wide wide open space we spend so much time in the city and uh, I, you know Hitchcock is is comfortable there comfortable in old houses comfortable in all these old places but then he takes us out into the middle of the country and uh, and gives us a, a rollicking good chase I think the uh, in terms of how he uses the pace how the film slows down how it gives you a chance to really examine what um, you know what loss looks like and I mean loss like a character who is lost uh it looks like on screen uh is beautifully and i think also comically depicted through these very wide wide shots um the all leading to uh, of course unveiling that the the ultimate threat is a crop duster it's so beautifully constructed and and it is this scene it inspired the helicopter chase in from russia with love Another element that I think was smart is that he and Bernard Herrmann said, you know what, no music during this. They left it without any score until the plane crashes into 
the oil tanker. And that's the moment that the score kicks up again. So you have this beautifully long sequence that is just building tension in kind of really the only the way that Hitchcock can. And it's it's magical. And just the way that eventually you start hearing this the sounds of this crop duster far in the distance. And then you have the the person waiting at the bus station who kind of has the comment about it before he boards the bus. And it's not something we think about too much, but it's just those thoughts that and then all of a sudden, oh, this is why all of that is happening, because now this crop duster <laughs> is buzzing him in the attempts to to shoot him and obviously fitted with some sort of a, a machine gun as it uh, tries to gun him down. Well, things were very different. <laughs> uh, it, it wasn't enough just to have to be loaded with Monsanto stuff, you know? <laughs> the ultimate the product placement. To, to get rid of those varmints. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, it's funny, too, because this character that they've created in uh, Roger is... Uh, you know, back to the to the Roger or to the um, James Bond illusion. I find it interesting because he really is a cracking good detective for us, right? As our protagonist, I think that's what makes yeah. him different than some of the uh, Wrong Man on the Run, where they're just running and they get in and out of of uh, you know adventures. But in this case, Roger's a guy that is putting his smarts to work, right? He's really, uh, he's interesting to watch as he pulls apart all these very different um, sequences, right? Pulls apart all the clues. Uh, the one that I love the most is when they finally, how he he managed just to get himself and his mother into the hotel room and then start searching. Like, what uh, <laughs> rank-and-file advertising executive, right, uh, is savvy enough to think to both try on the suit, uh, to uh, to take the or, or later in the in the scene back in the hotel room again to to pencil sketch or, or to pencil shade over the notepad to see what mm-hmm. was written on top of it. Like th- this is a guy that I just naturally find I believe, but I have no business believing that he is that naturally good at investigating this sort of a case. It is definitely part of the trope. I mean, you definitely see that in in these people because otherwise, yeah. you know, that that's the only way that they can survive, right? They and have you can't to move be... the story forward if they don't have some sort of a leg. Exactly. They have to figure that out. So, but he does it really well. And I, it, whether it's putting those little puzzle pieces together, like figuring out, oh, he's a different size than me and just everything he does, like talking to the the woman who uh, kind of comes in, the, the, the housemaid who comes in to change everything. And he's, and they just all presume that he's, uh, that he's Kaplan because he's in the room, even though they've never seen him before, which I think mm-hmm. was a really clever uh, kind of discovery for him through to kind of figuring out just how to get away from like the guys being smart enough when he's drunk to figure out, let's push this guy out and then I'll just try to take off and hopefully escape. Uh, he's He is very smart. And I think that is definitely something that we see. And uh, it's an important part of the trope. He had a lot of bourbon. <laughs> He plays drunk so well. He plays a great drunk, but that was a lot of bourbon, Andy. How <laughs> sure was he? Was. Like I couldn't drink that much. I couldn't Holy drink cow. that much. That was a bottle, really, of bourbon they poured down his throat. Uh, and then he was still loosened enough to drive that mountain road. That would not have been me. I would have been gone. 
I, I think that actually it was really effective the way that Hitchcock does that. Like the yeah. moment where all of a sudden there's the superimposition of the road going in a different direction and he starts following that and then it kind of fades away and all of a sudden he's driving in the ditch. Yeah. Like that is really an effective way of depicting kind of that drunk inability to actually tell which way is right. I love it. And I do have to follow that up with something that I never really got as an actual joke. But in the court, after he's kind of gone through this whole thing about his being charged with the DWI and everything, and his mother says, oh, Roger, just pay the $2, which I always thought was so funny because it just, I'm like, oh, boy, have times changed as far as the amount that it costs and the things that they do to you if you're charged with this. I didn't realize this is actually a joke referencing a vaudeville sketch from uh, Willie Howard that it was a kind of a depression era vaudeville sketch. And it's this guy who's in court to pay a $2 fine because he spit on the subway. His lawyer... Uh, wants to fight the case. The lawyer keeps fighting the case and keeps causing this guy to have bigger and bigger sentences. And this guy just keeps screaming, just pay the $2, just pay the $2. And that's where the whole joke came from. They also used it in Ziegfeld Follies, uh, where Edward Arnold um, portrayed the uh, the attorney in in kind of the actual sketch of that scene. But I had no idea that it that's where it came from. I thought that was a really interesting uh, little discovery. No idea. That's fantastic. It makes much more sense now, but I'm with you. I mean, that's how we talked about it last night. Well, kids, isn't it crazy how cheap things were? <laughs> Those people sure are old. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I mean, seriously, I mean, you can't, you know, the way that his mother delivers that line. Yeah. It, I mean, it's just that alone, I think, it just makes the whole thing work that much more because she is just so funny. Just the way, oh, Roger, just pay the $2, you know, just, <laughs> it's just so good. She's oh, yeah, she's great. What does it say? What is the message it says about a mother and her son? The relationship between Roger and his mother in this movie, like symbolically, there's there's something afoot here that isn't to be celebrated. There's definitely an interesting element here, and I don't know if it comes from Hitchcock's own life or Layman's own life as far as why it ended up in the script, but it's definitely a thing that that pops up quite a bit in this film as far as the number of times that Roger Thornhill references his mother as far as like calling his mother. He's concerned that his mother can't find him when at the very beginning because he's she's at the wrong place or whatever. And it's just, it's kind of this constant thing. And I don't know if it's just something that they thought would be really funny to kind of play this guy as I really kind of like this, this grown up child, really, who still constantly needs to kind of deal with everything as far as uh, running it by his mother, having his mother involved in everything. This is, of course, Jesse Roy Royce Landis, who played uh, Cary Grant's mother in the film, even though she's only seven years older than him. <laughs> But it's it's a very interesting uh, kind of element of the story to kind of include in here. There's a few things like that. Like that was something that was really interesting, the way that he was this this character who was constantly concerned about his mother in everything that he was doing. And then you have Martin Landau's character who 
feels like an early homosexual character as far as some of the things that he says and throws out in his relationship with Van Damme. And I was like, there's some really interesting character writing that Lehman is doing here that I think uh, makes this film kind of stand out in in some ways that uh, you may not have had in other 50s films. She has such an interesting career, and this is not her only uh, Hitchcock uh, she sure. played um, his, I guess you could say, almost mother-in-law or mother-in-law-to-be in To Catch a Thief. She was Grace Kelly's mother. Oh, that Grace Kelly. I do miss her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, indeed. We need to talk about James Mason. He is always brilliant, and I, I feel like there's an element to him in Hitchcock films where he just he works really well as a villain because he is... And again, this, I think, leads to why people say this was a great reference point for James Bond films to be. He's kind of this dashing, debonair villain. And he, I mean, look at the end, the way that when he's caught, he's just like, well, that wasn't very sporting. Uh, You know, just like, he's a different type of villain. And I find that to be really interesting and exciting. And it's just, I mean, it's always great to see James Mason in any of these sorts of projects. Well, it really is. And uh, I think the pair of of them, uh, Martin Landau and James Mason, make a great sort of diabolical uh, evil duo. Uh, and that they the, the way their character arcs are played and the way they use their presence in that house and then not being in the house and, and uh, how they have the stand-in wife. I mean, I, I just love the way he uses these characters um, you, to, to continuously trick, uh, you know, Roger uh, along the way. They're, it's just perfect. We should also just talk about just the way that Hitchcock constructed a lot of the scenes in this film. And I mean, I know we were talking about the actors in James Mason in particular, but the reason that it made me think of this is when we first meet James Mason, it ends up being this really interesting scene that feels very much like, I don't know, I can't help but feel like Hitchcock is creating a moment in theater because... James Mason walks into the room. I should say Van Damme. He walks into the room and and finds Roger Thornhill there. He goes over to the curtains, which are these big, you know, wall-sized windows, and he closes the blinds, and then he walks around the room, and he slowly turns the lights on one at a time, lighting up his star, and it all feels very theatrical. And it feels like, and Hitchcock has a lot of angles that he's filming all of this with that are higher angle shots looking down on kind of the actors and everything that they're doing, where it is kind of this godlike kind of director position that Hitchcock takes here. The The best example of it is when when Thornhill is running from the United Nations and you have that shot that is like almost, you know, in the clouds right next to the top of the United Nations building, and you just see this little tiny dot running away from the building, which, of course, is a shot that I... Uh, I um, used as an homage in uh, my college 
short film, The Weight, because it's just such a perfect, <laughs> it's a perfect shot too. It is, it to is a perfect off. shot. Uh, I, I totally agree with you. And I actually thought that's where you were going to go when you started talking about his uh, sort of uh, noir uh, tendencies, uh, because this scene in the, the office initially, uh, in the library, sitting room, library, and also who hangs paintings like that there's a shelf of books and they put a painting right on the center structure you can't get the books when they're behind <laughs> the, the i was very upset by that anyhow uh, there is this this sequence where uh, or, or where we have these shots that get increasingly high almost to like that security camera you know godlike view and the the blocking is just perfect the way we have james mason who settles himself in on the couch with his cigarette and we have lando in the middle landau lando <laughs> uh, uh, Lando different, up in the middle, the, the the taller of of them, and then you have Cary Grant on the left, and you have that perfect triangle in that sequence, and it's just diabolical. Uh, it, that even though um, you know we have uh, such a, a confused look on Cary Grant's face, you can still get a sense of sort of the power differential between the three of them, and how it looks like effectively those two uh, Mason and Landau can can just at any moment sort of pounce, and it, it's just a very sort of active uh, uh, structure uh, uh, in the frame. I really, really like it. Uh, It's one of those sequences I keep coming back to as I think about this movie and how how great he makes it look, how great he makes his actors look in frame. Yeah, truly. The way that he constructs all of his his, uh, shots of his characters, it's Mm -hmm. it's very smart. And of course, the same goes for Eva Marie Saint, who just always looks uh, radiant in in every scene that we see her in. The other thing that I think is is important to note about all of these high angles on people is that it it makes a wonderful contrast when we finally get to Mount Rushmore at the end and then we're just looking up. There are so many like up angle shots looking up the nose of the presidents as, as watching them hang off of places and you get I, I think it's an interesting contrast that you know you see the camera framing people in power and yet the way he shoots with Rushmore and his actors demonstrates that they are ultimately powerless right they are insects uh to these just sort of powerful figures that are that that make up the landscape and i i find that particularly moving yeah did it make you want to do some repelling off of a eyeball (laughs) you know uh, what i will say is it uh it thrilled me that hitchcock chose that as one of the locations and of course that was one of the initial ideas that that he had when uh he and layman were talking about the script um because i mean it wasn't even this that they were supposed to be working on they were supposed to be working on a totally different movie uh the wreck of the Mary deer and that's uh, and and layman came to him as just like i cannot figure out how to crack this story and uh hitchcock said well you know let's do something else and and he had a wanted to do a mistaken identity building he wanted it to involve the united nations and of course a chase across the faces on mount rushmore and yeah i think it's fascinating the way that they did that and even though they ended up getting um not getting permission to actually film at Mount Rushmore because the people at the park were concerned of uh, the fact that these people might, you know, be considered defacing the the presidents. 
they made it look great. And just the sets, everything is just, it's a thrill to watch all of them chasing across up there and, and the different angles and everything. It just, it's, it's just a very exciting way to kind of close this out. And, uh, I, I we all still laugh about the fact that there's this, you know, unknown landing strip at the top of the <laughs> mountain there that nobody else knows about. I, I wonder, yeah, I wonder uh, if the Rangers ever found it. Except I feel like if anyone would have found it, it's Nicolas Cage in the uh, National Treasure films, because <laughs> he, he found other things at Mount Rushmore, as he I sure did. You know, I wonder, we should do it. We should do just a quick uh, Mount Rushmore on the old Google Maps. Let's just see what's up there. Yeah, it's not there, Andy. <laughs> it's not there. Definitely no runway. There well, is definitely you know, no runway. It was 1959, Pete. Maybe it's grown over. <laughs> <laughs> That's an excellent point. Uh, have you ever been there? Have you been to Mount Rushmore? I haven't. And it, it is it is very frustrating because both of my kids have. Their grandparents took them. Uh, yeah. And so I've never been. Have you? I have. I, I went there, um, not only there, but also the... Um, uh, just kind of that whole area, and what's uh, what's the um, the other one that's nearby that's still under construction? I'm blanking on its name. Well, I can guarantee that if it's near Mount Rushmore, I haven't been there. The other area that we went to it, when it, we went to Mount Rushmore, this was a college trip. We went to Mount Rushmore. It was also Crazy Horse Memorial, which oh, is yeah. still being constructed to this very day. But what we did while we were there is we took a helicopter ride and we got to fly around uh, the Crazy Horse Memorial and over to Mount Rushmore. And and I definitely did not see any landing pads when I, we behind it. <laughs> I think it's, I, I think I found it. I'm very much looking forward to this. So are the people at the National Park. We should make they sure should that they should look aware. behind this one rock. Oh, there is. I, I see what you're looking at. It's probably just this little dirt strip. That's a very, yeah. very short runway. <laughs> I like your imagination. You could, you could see it there. And, and if you look, like, I, if you tilt the 3D up, it's it's longer than you think. The problem is, my goodness, <laughs> it's short. <laughs> it is a yeah. short runway. It's for little tiny planes, people. Little tiny planes. <laughs> Dare to dream. Right. Dare to, it's It's one of those, like, Beautiful. You know what? I'll bet it's perfect for wingsuit gliding. I mean, you run hey, you out of there. There's like a little channel that you can glide down by the presidents. Yeah, that's pretty that'd sick. be fun. Yep. Ah, oh, well, it's a fun Dare place. You definitely should check it out. I, I think everybody should. It's a a very here's very the thing. Cool, I wonder though, does it look like it did? Place did did they did they actually duplicate like the visitor center? You know, I my daughter she very recently. Uh, had a trip with uh, with her grandparents to Mount Rushmore. And when they are in the visitor center, she's like, I've been there. So <gasps> I really? assume that it looks pretty similar. I can't remember myself because it's been uh, a number of years longer since I was there, but she was taken by how much it yeah, looked like. It. You're pretty so old. I <laughs> Thank you. Just means I'm wise, Pete. That's all that you're telling me. Glad you get that out of that. Um, let's... <laughs> That's what you take, Pete. What do we <laughs> speaking specifically of Mount Rushmore and just what they did here? The production design was spectacular. The way that they designed it to to look like the kind of the carvings up there. I mean, it's just it really 
is mind-bogglingly good. I just think they do such a great job with uh, with everything there. Right down to the house at the top that has kind of this Frank Lloyd Wright feel to it. Just everything works really well. So I think the production design was was spot on. They did a great job with that. And, and camera work, I mean, just everything. I think that they captured all of it really beautifully. There's a wonderful website called Hooked on Houses that actually has a rundown of the architecture of all of the the locations in North by or North by Northwest, and that that final house um, is it, I mean, it's just beautiful with that giant section and the beautiful deck that come off the uh, off off the place. It is a it, it, a complete matte painting. It was never built. No part of it was ever actually built um, uh, because obviously nothing can be built on top of the the monument. But um, uh, it is. A, a beautiful modernist house, and it was Hitchcock who went to the production designers and said, "I want a Frank Lloyd Wright house," uh, and so designed something that's going to be iconic and recognizable to audiences. Uh, and they couldn't afford Frank Lloyd Wright's fee because he was obviously still designing houses there. Uh, mm. And so uh, Sandy McClendon says the house was created entirely in Culver City, uh, where MGM was located, consisted of just a few sections that were, in fact, built at, few, at full scale uh, that were uh, tied together with mats uh, at the end. Um, and uh, it was just uh, uh, the final design was of a hilltop house of limestone dressed and laid in the manner fa- made famous by Wright, along with a concrete cantilever under the living room area. Very cool house. Uh, these were designed by Robert Boyle, William Horning, Merrill Pye, Henry Grace and Frank McKelvey. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. I think that's great. Uh, obviously, the production designer gets all those kudos. Robert F. Boyle. Uh, designed yeah. the the uh, film and did a great job with all of that stuff. And we did mention the cinematography, cinematography but Robert Burks, who did the uh, cinematography for this film, was a Hitchcock regular who had uh, worked with him since 1951, Strangers on the Train, not on every film of his um, in this period, but from there all the way through Marnie in, uh, in the early 60s. And so was, uh, you know, kept pretty busy with with Hitchcock on his projects. Did you know that the did you know the the alternate alternate titles they had for this film one of them which there's only one title that I think yes. is better. <laughs> I know there were quite a few. Um I I'm curious which one you're going to say. I have a and feeling of course, I know. It's the man in Lincoln's nose. <laughs> of <laughs> course right. it is. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> what a fantastic title. <laughs> yeah, they also because I I guess they were trying to work on the title for quite a while and couldn't figure out what to do. Um, I think initially it was called In a Northwesterly Direction. And then <laughs> the head of the story department at the studio said, why don't you call it North by Northwest? And they were like, eh, okay. And that was their working title, assuming they'd come up with something better. Of course, The Man in Lincoln's Nose was kind of a joke that that Hitchcock had. Um, other titles were Breathless, In a Northwest Direction, and The CIA Story. <laughs> I don't like so, any of those. No, really, they're North all North terrible. Is the only one. And North by Northwest is still is a title. It's like, <laughs> well, it, but it's like, what does it even mean? I don't know. But you know what? It's fine. I like it because it it's just a title that is as much a MacGuffin as the MacGuffins in the movie. Truly, that. All right. Uh, music. You already brought up uh, the music, but you brought up the music in the context of a sequence that was silent. 
<laughs> right. Can I bring it up in another can, odd yeah, can context? Can we talk about it? <laughs> talk about it around actual Another music? odd context. Um, the music for it was used in the, I, I, I don't know if it was the teaser trailer or the actual trailer, but of the animated film Ants that DreamWorks put out in 1998. They used I, this music. They did, yes. And I was, I, I just remember watching the trailer and hearing it, and I'm like, what, what are they trying to say about this? And it, for all I remember, it may have actually been used in the film as well. I just thought it was so strange to use um, some music from North by Northwest in the film. That is very strange. Yeah, Interesting. Right? Cool. Uh, music by Bernard Herrmann. Oh, and we have to talk about the the interesting opening sequence or the the titles uh, just because it's so yeah. interesting. But what an interesting, uh, just what a right out of the gate, you get this kind of this driving, pounding music that just kind of kicks in. And it's just kind of this relentless force. It just works really well in context of the film. I think it does, too. And and to your point about the opening titles, uh, it is a fantastic title sequence. Um uh, it comes to us from, um, uh, it was a Saul Bass thing, right? Uh, yeah, Saul Bass, right. Saul Bass uh, titles. And I have to great. ask, do you recall, and I, I I don't know, I should have done some research on this, but I am very curious because when the logo comes up of MGM, it is this vibrant green. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, is this the first time that a director and a studio like are playing around with their logo a little bit in context of the movie that we're about to see? And I don't know if that's, if that's, uh, if it really is the first one, but it did make me wonder, like, when does that start when filmmakers really start kind of playing around with the studio's logo in context of the film itself? I don't know. I don't know. Because uh, I asked be myself, as soon to, as it comes up, I'm like, what a weird green logo for MGM. Why would they do that? And then, of course, it's the Saul Bass titles that are that green. I'm like, oh, okay. So that's, I guess, why? Uh, I don't know. But the the title sequence itself, it does fade to that. Uh, we, it brings up the sort of uh, lines, right? The vector lines that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it looks already like the facade of a building. Uh, but... Uh, it's not until we see that green start to fade a little bit and the building behind it actually starts to to fade in. It is the CIT building in Manhattan, uh, which is where uh, Thornhill's um, fictitious agency is located. And it it beautifully just sort of mimics the view of uh, that, that you would see when looking down at the building from another uh, building across the street. I think it perfectly mimics the, the, the view that you'd be looking down. And then eventually you see little people down there. Uh, on the streets and cars and stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's great. You know, I just have to say, uh, while you were talking, I was uh, I was doing some research. 1959, the year this came out. Also, the other one that I was like, okay, I can think of one other movie early on that did some playing with their logo, and it of course was the same year. So now I'd almost have to go and see which one came out first. But in fact, Columbia they released the mouse that roared. Also, 1959, Peter Sellers and Gene Seberg. Was it a Saul Bass? It wasn't, but uh, oh, you know what? I take it back. It was uh, no, it was uh, Maurice Binder. Okay, Okay. Uh, a little different, but it starts off with the Columbia logo and the woman holding the torch, and then it cuts to her feet, and there's a little mouse running around down there, (laughs) and she she screams and like runs out, and you see that the torch she's holding is not actually she's not holding it. It's like hanging, and it's like I don't I can't remember exactly, but anyway. 
that was another one that uh, was an early example. And uh, of course, it's the same year. So who well, knows? Well, that's adorable. It is. It is a great little video <laughs> or title sequence. Yeah, I love it. Oh, I can see it right now. It's really, there it is. There's a mouse. Yeah. And she really right. hikes up her skirt. <laughs> she just takes off. What I can't tell is, is that, was it an animated person? No, uh, it's an actress. Like it was they an had her yeah. there and then she runs out and then it cuts to an animated title sequence. But yes, I'll be darned. You know, we didn't uh, we didn't talk too much about Cary Grant. This is our Cary Grant series. But I did want to say this anecdote that I thought was really funny. Hitchcock, apparently, when filming Vertigo the year before, had was talking to uh, James Stewart about about this story that they were developing. And he was interested in playing Roger Thornhill. Of course, Hitchcock already kind of had Cary Grant in mind for the role and was embarrassed to say anything to to uh, Jimmy Stewart about it. And uh, so what he did is he kind of kept, once he was done with Vertigo, he kept putting off production of the movie until it hit this point where James, James Stewart was already kind of committed to working on Anatomy of Murder with Otto Preminger. And that's when Hitchcock came in and said, hey, we're finally going to do this movie. Do you want to be in it? And, and Jimmy Stewart said, I can't. I'm filming this other movie now. And that's uh, what gave him the, you know, what he needed so that he could actually hire Cary Grant to do the role. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I I found the, the uh, uh, reportedly Hitchcock gave Eva Marie Saint uh, only three instructions performative instructions and i i read these last night i thought ah i should have started these like with my kids when they were three Uh, (laughs) number one lower your voice number two don't use your hands and number three always look into carrie grant's eyes (laughs) (laughs) what more do you need what more do you need how to do an award season you know it was kind of that thriller sort of movie it wasn't a big award movie it had eight wins, 10 other nominations. At the Oscars, it was nominated for Best Original Screenplay, but lost to Pillow Talk. And then the Art Direction Set Decoration was nominated, and the Film Editing was nominated, but both of those lost to Ben-Hur, which was a pretty big film at the time. At the Directors Guild Awards, Hitchcock was nominated, but lost to William Wyler for Ben-Hur. At the, uh, and then the writing, uh, Ernest Lehman did win for Best Motion Picture at the Edgar Allan Poe Awards, which are writing awards. And at the WGAs, he was nominated for Best Written American Comedy, which is funny, uh, but lost to some like it hot. I guess it's classified as a comedy like The Martian is, you know, it's one of those, uh, one of those sorts of things where like, what are we going to call this? We'll <laughs> call it a comedy. Get it in there. Uh, and how about at the box office? Did we end up doing any good? You know, Grant didn't think so. Apparently, Cary Grant was really, uh, you know, he kept asking Hitchcock, oh, I don't, what is this? What? None of this makes sense to me. And Hitchcock, <laughs> Hitchcock went along with it and said, this is perfect for your character. We're just going to play it up. If you're confused, that's great. That's what we want the audience to get out of you. And Hitch, and Cary Grant went into this thinking it would be a big flop and just he didn't get it. And he just thought it was not going to make any money. Hitchcock did spend, or he got a budget of just over $3 million to make. Uh, he ended up overspending. In the end, he ended up spending $4.3 million to make the movie, which is about $37.8 million in today's dollars. 
The movie premiered Chicago July 1st, 1959, before its wider release beginning July 17th. And, uh, you know, Cary Grant was proven quite wrong. This was a very, very successful film. It ended up the ninth highest grossing film of the year. According to the ever-helpful Eddie Mannix ledgers, which we've talked about a number of times um, yes. when, when he pops up on, uh, on MGM Projects, the film did earn $9.8 million at the box office, which is about $86.2 million in today's dollars. It has had subsequent re-releases, so it has earned more than that now, but I couldn't sort out all those different figures. Just with those initial figures, however, the film did end up with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $356,000. Another great turn for Grant and Hitchcock in their final collaboration. Can you see? Can you see Hitch coming up to Cary Grant? Oh, Cary, you're so pretty, but so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, Grant was one of those people. That, boy, he just, uh, I, you know, I think he was just a, an actor who just, you know, enjoyed enjoyed doing what he did, but also enjoyed the money that he made. Um, he I, His salary was $450,000 for the movie. And then, because it went over schedule and over budget, he ended up working an additional nine weeks at the rate of $5,000 a day. So what? he ended up earning an additional $315,000 in the penalty fees. Um, so almost doubled his salary just because of those nine weeks of uh, extended uh, days for the project. That's almost podcast money. Uh, uh, all right. Well, Andy, this is a great one. I, I have absolutely been looking forward to talking about this movie, uh, if only because it, it is, even though I liked last week's movie, it's even a little bit of a palate cleanser. It reminds me just how debonair that Cary Grant is and how glad I am we're talking about his movies. One last thing before we go that I thought was interesting. I, I mentioned the fact that Martin Landau's character has this kind of this, this homosexual vibe with him. Landau actually did come out and he actually had said, you know, he decided to play this character as gay and in love with Van Damme. He said he played him very subtly. He wanted to get rid of Eva Marie Saint with such a vengeance. James Mason, to the day he died, had become a friend of mine. The most often asked question of James was whether Van Damme, his character, was bisexual. He said, no, he wasn't, but Landau made a choice and there's nothing I can do about it. And then Landau continues, I actually caused him some grief. Everyone told me not to do that because it was my first big movie and people would think I was gay. I'm an actor. I said, it's not going to be my last movie and it certainly wasn't. I've never played a character like that since. I also felt it was something people would know or not know. It was very subtle. I thought in Boise, Idaho, they might not notice. Uh, he said after he made the decision to play Leonard as gay, Hitchcock and screenwriter Ernest Lehman were very supportive of the, uh, of the idea. Ernie Lehman added a line, uh, Landau said, which was not in the script. Call it my woman's intuition. That was the line that he says um, later in the house. That was not in the script. It was a very daring line for the 1950s. Men didn't say things like that. Hitchcock loved what I did and left me alone. Avatar? Yeah. Interesting little uh, uh, kind of twist that I, I do agree. It's subtle. It's not necessarily something that that uh, calls attention to itself. But when you, uh, when you see it there and you realize that that's the direction, you go, oh, okay. Yeah train left without him uh, i like that uh yeah martin made a choice nothing i can do about it now <laughs> <laughs> all right uh why don't we why don't we take it to the mat andy let's do it head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel you'll see all the movies that we've talked about on this very show if you swipe over in your show notes and tap the word flickchart it will take you straight to north by northwest where you can add it to your list and see how it stands up against ours
just warning you, Pete, this is pretty high in my personal flick chart. So we'll see where no. we land here. North oh, by Northwest, Lakaja Fall. North by Northwest. North by Northwest. North by Northwest or Do the Right Thing. Boy, there's a timely movie. As time late as it is, I still have to say North by Northwest. Yeah, I'm going to go with North by Northwest. North by Northwest or Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. North by Northwest. North by Northwest. North by Northwest or Black Hawk Down. Uh, North by Northwest. North by Northwest. North by Northwest or Casablanca. Casablanca. North by Northwest for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's do it. All right, here we go. Yep. One. One. Two, three, three. scissors, scissors. scissors. Oh, Casablanca takes it. I'm okay with that. North by Northwest <laughs> or Alien? Uh, alien. Boy, I want to say North by Northwest, but I am I'm gonna say Alien. I know. I know. <laughs> North it's by okay. Northwest or Abrams 2009 Star Trek? Uh, North by Northwest. North by Northwest. North by Northwest or Black Klansman? Or second Spike Lee. Oh, man. Still got to go North by Northwest. It's North by Northwest. I'm sorry. I know. North by Northwest or Raiders of the Lost Ark? Raiders. Raiders. Yeah. Well, North by Northwest jumped really high. Spot 23 on our chart. 23 out of 456 films. Puts it uh, pretty high up there, Pete. I like it. There. I like it. I'm surprised uh, on some of those, but not by you, by me. Uh, <laughs> I am <laughs> surprised at my own reaction. And, you know, when I ranked this on my chart, it was surprisingly low. It was one of those flick chart sort of hate events where I just I ranked it so long ago that other movies just kind of filled in and pushed it down. So re-ranking it was quite an exercise today. How'd it do on your list? Oh, you know, really well. <laughs> it's, it's one of those films. It's very easy to just shoot to the top. Did, um, did you landed... have to re-rank it? Like, did you have to re-rank it? I was, didn't did because I, I checked it to see where it was. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. Um, it's in spot 36 out of 4377, which is a 99%. It's way up there for me. Mine, um, it, it came in a little bit lower, but it ran into the Hudson Hawk block, Andy. I think you know what I mean. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's at 77 uh, out of 1451, which is a 95%. And and if I'm to go by the uh, algorithm over at letterboxd.com, uh, this should be a four and a half star movie, which I think is selling it short. So tell me, where do the stars fall for you? If it's a five star movie for me, what do you think? Quibbles takes it down to a four? <laughs> oh easily yeah. easily no yeah this is this is a top notch five star film for me so yes but it, but is it have a heart I can't imagine but can you imagine just saying oh five stars but five star, no heart no for this heart. one yeah I've done that very rarely and I definitely won't do that here alright five stars in the heart it was great where do we go from here <laughs> that was great we're going to be wrapping up this brief Cary Grant series with Stanley Donen's 1963 film Charade can't wait Audrey Hepburn Cary Grant you're supposed to say Charade Charade <laughs> I do like this one too what a great series mm. yeah, good stuff Cary Grant it's going to be a lot of fun uh, and uh, then we're that's the last one right then we take a little bit of a break taking a brief hiatus before we come back with the uh, the series for the rest of the year, which That's we right. will be uh, announcing soon. Oh, I think next week, right? You pledged. 
You pledged, Andy. No, I pledged today, the day this this episode goes along. No, last week's episode. So we're speaking from the future. It's already done. That's right. We are speaking from the future. Outstanding time travel. When the movie ends. Our conversation began. Amazon giveth, Andrew. As Amazon always doeth. Yes, they do. Uh, I'll tell you, this is another one with tough delivery. Uh, don't buy the DVD, people. That's Apparently, a mistake. Don't you run it on make. your Linux system either, Pete. No, it will not run on Linux. <laughs> um, and uh, also, we have uh, we have some people who genuinely didn't like the movie. I, there I'm were a few. Amazed. Yeah, there were a few. Yeah. Would you like to go first? Sure, I will. Uh, I will take it away. Uh, <laughs> I'm surprised because I didn't think you'd be ready. <laughs> I mean, can I? Can I do two? I know it's a, a rarity. <laughs> but Andy, our time-honored tradition of one each. What about I, that? Well, this—the reason is, Pete. This is just very funny. This is from Deb, one star, who says very hard to use. I could not get the current time to stay. It kept changing to 9.30. Could not get the alarm to set. <laughs> Each button had multiple uses. I never thought a clock radio would be so difficult. Oh, no. And apparently using Amazon reviews is difficult for Deb, too. But no, I'm just going to do this one. It's real short. One star. I know it's a classic, but it is a really boring <laughs> patriarchal movie. Yeah, sometimes the classics are. Sometimes. I uh, I had one from Jordan who says, take off the rose-colored glasses. The plot is imbecilic. Cary Grant gives the only performance he seems capable of giving. And worst of all, the suspense was non-existent because the danger was unconvincing. We all love Hitchcock, but had this movie been made by an unknown, it would not have its current rating. I do love the time-accurate misogyny, though. That's where it earns the only star I'm giving it. <laughs> Agreed, Jordan. Well said. <laughs> Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show 
by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.